This is episode 53 of Cinescope, and life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're gonna get. Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and joining me today is Katie White to talk about one of our favorite films, Forrest Gump. Katie, how are you doing tonight? I'm well, Chad. How are you? I am doing well as well, at least today. I was a little under the weather. We postponed the podcast by a day, but here we are. I'm feeling better, and I'm very ready to talk about this movie. Yeah, I'm excited to do this. Well, how about before we start, you introduce us to who you are and what you do and all that good kind of stuff that the listeners might be interested in. Great. So as Chad said, my name is Katie White. I am um, an actor and arts administrator here in New York City. I met Chad at Texas Tech University, where we both were music majors, um, Chad for French horn and myself for voice. And we've um, since, I mean, since I moved to New York, we really kind of fell out of contact except for Twitter. Um, And so we've kind of kept up our friendship over Twitter. And then now we talk a lot more because Chad and I have actually started a podcast of our own. Chad approached me to start a podcast of one of our very, very favorite TV shows, The Office. So that is underway, and Chad and I have been uh, luckily in contact a lot more recently. (laughs) We have, indeed. In fact, this is our fourth or fifth time recording together at this point. Yeah. Uh, More on our Office podcast later, but uh, we have been plugging it in the last couple of episodes, and you can look forward to listening to that very soon. So with that, I think it's time to just go ahead and jump in. Let's do it. Okay, so we're talking about Forrest Gump, which was released on July 6th of 1994 and was directed by my favorite director, Robert Zemeckis, who also directed Romancing the Stone, the Back to the Future trilogy, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Contact, What Lies Beneath, Castaway, The Polar Express, Beowulf, A Christmas Carol, Flight, The Walk, and most recently, Allied. The script was written by Eric Roth and was based on the book of the same name by Winston Groom. The music here was composed by Alan Silvestri, Mr. Zemeckis' normal collaborator, so his filmography looks like Zemeckis movies, as well as Captain America the First Avenger, The Avengers, and is set to score the upcoming Avengers Infinity War and the untitled Avengers 4. This movie stars Tom Hanks, Robin Wright, Gary Sinise, Sally Field, and McKelty Williamson. So as always, Katie, how about you start us off with what your first memories of this movie are, maybe if you remember your first time viewing it or anything like that. You know, I actually don't remember the first time I watched this movie. Uh, I think I was pretty young. I mean, not too, too young because there is some (laughs) explicit content in it, but I don't really remember my first time. Um, But I do remember the first time I watched it consciously, (laughs) the first time I remember watching it. I didn't think it was anything special. I think I was a little too young to really appreciate it. And then I watched it again many, many years later, probably in college, and I just fell in love with it. It's a really unique film to me. It's um, if you've seen the film, it's it's really it's it's set up really differently. Um, you're kind of taken through a tour of you know three or four decades through one character, which is really unique. And I am absolutely in love with Tom Hanks, so it's just absolutely one of my favorite movies. 
I had a pretty similar experience, actually. Um, I think I saw bits and pieces of the movie on TV, maybe growing up. But the first time I actually remember sitting down and watching the movie was at my grandparents' house. And my grandmother and I, I think it was probably during the summer, I was around middle school age, if I had to guess, maybe early high school. And they had this old beat up VHS copy of the movie. <laughs> and so it wasn't the highest quality watching experience, but it was a watching experience nonetheless. I enjoyed the movie for what it was. But I think at the time, most of what I enjoyed about it was just sort of the quirkiness of Tom Hanks' character. Uh, you know, he's he's occasionally funny. He's got these weird personality traits where he does silly stuff because of just who he is. And I think at the time, that's more of what I was drawn into than anything else. But certainly as time has gone on, I've watched it more, I've matured, and I've explored the film a little bit more. I have understood the depth of the characters a lot more and the context of the events in which the movie is framed. And since then, it's become one of my favorite movies. Like I said, Robert Zemeckis is my favorite movie director. Back to the Future, it's no secret. It's my favorite movie, <laughs> just period. And I love Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And Forrest Gump is just up there with the best of them, I think. This has been a movie that I've been looking forward to talking about on the podcast for a long time. I didn't realize he also directed Castaway, which is another one of my favorite of Tom Hanks's work. Yeah, he and Tom Hanks have somewhat formed a little bit of a collaboration between the two of them because they did this, they did Castaway, they did uh, The Polar Express. Right. So, yeah. They clearly like each other's work. <laughs> they do. Um, now, what about the story? What in the story here specifically sort of draws you in? Well, I think um, one of my favorite parts of the story is also part of what makes this film really special, which is um, we hear Forrest Gump narrating quite a lot, but he's not narrating just for the sake of narrating. He's narrating because he's telling the story while he's sitting at the bus stop. So some of my favorite moments are actually when Forrest is um, seen on screen at the bus stop talking to the various strangers on the bench. I know that's uh, one of my favorite parts of the story because we do get to see him in the flashbacks and uh, as he's telling the story again. Yeah, I really do like that framing device where he, he's talking to these random people of varying degrees of uh, interest or even belief in his story. And his narration is just so simple and honest and non-complex to put a nail in it. He's an unextraordinary man. I love that about the story. He's remarkably unextraordinary. And watching his life unfurl with the backdrop of some of our nation's biggest historical events from basically the 50s to the 80s. Uh, it, it's just a clever way of sort of dating Forrest and watching him grow. And it's actually somewhat similar to just the way we mark our own lives, I think. You know, especially in our generation, we look at life sort of pre and post 9-11 in a lot of ways. And there's always those historical benchmarks that you compare your own life against. And you can look and you say, oh, I remember this specifically because it happened right before or after this major event. And so I think it's a really clever way of attaching us to Forrest and, again, just watching him grow. And we get to see a lot of how he how these life events have aged with Forrest. So we see how he reacts at the time to, say, the death of his friends and how that information ages with him. A lot of times he'll just say, and that's all I have to say about that, because he's he's processed it and that's he's kind of at peace with it now. And it's it's neat to see both sides of that character, you know, mourning the death of a friend or his mother versus later on in his life when he's more at peace. 
And I, I really like the switch from the framing device of telling the story on the park bench to picking up where his story leaves off and continuing through to the end with the reintroduction of Jenny and the introduction of Little Forest and then uh, their subsequent marriage and Jenny's death. It, it's it's a really sweet way to end the film. It, it's a very bittersweet ending for sure, but it almost weighs more towards the happy, I think, because everybody's made peace with themselves and uh, with their love for each other. I think another, um, this is sort of a vague plot point, but the last probably 30 minutes of the film is by far, it's it's a whole different film to me. It's just my absolute favorite part of the whole movie, probably from when he starts running to the end, specifically when we see him meet his son. One of my favorite lines of the whole movie, it's one of the most heartbreaking things I've seen on film, just in my opinion, is when Forrest asks Jenny, is he smart or is he, and he starts to say, like me. And I think that's the first time, it's it's not the first time Forrest admits that he's not smart, but it's the first time he's about to admit that he's dumb. And it's just, he knows, at, at that point, you're like, he knows that he's different. And it, oh, it kills me every time. Oh, same here. I, I wrote that scene down as well. And I think the the real tragedy of it is, yes, it's him sort of admitting that he's, less than smart but i think it's it's not the like you said it's not the first time he's done so but it is the first time that he's sort of admitting that it puts him at a disadvantage right and he doesn't want his son to have that same disadvantage when compared to everyone else so yeah that that scene <laughs> it, it breaks my heart every time as well so yeah the look on his face he's terrified that his son might be at a disadvantage it's oh the, the last thing I really sort of had for story and just basic cinematography kind of stuff is Zemeckis continues his trend of making cinematic breakthroughs as far as like technology goes. You see them putting Forrest into this archival footage and uh, digitally altering people from history's mouths within that footage so that they can actually talk. And maybe it doesn't hold up entirely well. They could probably pull it off a little bit better today. I'm sure they could probably even go back and remaster it to make it look perfect. Uh, I'm not saying I want them to do that, but it, it was pretty groundbreaking at the time for sure back in 1994. So stuff like that. And then Lieutenant Dan's legs. You know, Robert Zemeckis is a guy who brought cartoons and live action together for the first time in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And then in Polar Express, he basically introduced the idea and the concept of the 3D movie. And then Beowulf was just a continuation of that idea on a much larger scale. So Zemeckis has always been on the forefront of cinematic technology. And this was one of his, uh, there were a lot of steps in this movie that he made towards furthering that. I had that written down as well, um, specifically with, with uh, Lieutenant Dan's legs, because there were several moments where um, I, I, I was curious. So I read about this because I knew that the actor has legs how they did this in 94 and it was pretty fascinating i i can't begin to um pretend like i have the knowledge to explain it but look it up if you can it's um really interesting how they how they pulled off these special effects uh well let's go ahead and start talking about characters so just right off the bat forrest himself what do you have to say about him oh forrest uh, he's so sweet um he to me is just the most innocent naive sweet man. I mean, he seems to look at everything very simply and very happily. Even the bad things that happen to him, it's a part of life. You never see him, not, not that I'm aware of, I don't think you ever see him get mad, really, at anything or think that anything's unfair. 
for someone with a low IQ, he still has a, such a wonderful life. And I think that's a really wonderful message to convey is like, it doesn't matter what you're given. You can make life better. You can, you can, you can choose to be happy. It's like his mom says, he's no different than anybody else. And so much of this movie is him experiencing life in a way anybody else would, getting some of the same opportunities. I like, you know, we've talked about in the Back to the Future movies that Robert Zemeckis and team are experts at sort of setting up and paying off these little details within their films. And this one is no exception. From the very first shot of the movie, from the, the feather landing in front of him, you see his beat up sneakers. So you can sort of automatically assume that he's athletic in some way. In fact, he shortly thereafter quotes his mom and says, mama always said that there's an awful lot you can tell about a person by their shoes. And he's a prime example. We see his shoes are beat up. They're frayed and torn and uh, they've clearly been through a lot. So he can make some assumptions. Uh, the fact that he picks up the feather to begin with, I think, is a pretty early indication that he's a curious person or that he's drawn to simple things. I think it's not too far a stretch to say that if you or I came across a feather, we wouldn't even consider it. You know, it, it, it'd just be a piece of debris floating by in the wind. But Forrest is the guy who picks it up. He More than that, he tucks it away in Curious George. So why does this grown man have a copy of Curious George? Why is he carrying it around? What's the significance of that? Why does he have a ping pong paddle in his suitcase? So we can assume some things about his character. We can ask some questions about his character just based on these little things that pay off later, that we learn more about later. And then even the fact that he's wearing a suit with those sneakers sort of sets up the fact that he's preparing for some sort of important event or meeting, uh, which is, as we come to find out, him meeting up with Jenny for the first time in who knows how long. So I just love that Zemeckis and team are so attentive to detail that just in those first few seconds of the film, you can assume and ask a lot about this character just by what we see. I hadn't thought about it, actually, with the suit and the tennis shoes. And that's such a a forest outfit. You know, he wants to look nice for Jenny, but it's his shoes. Those are his shoes. And that's what he wears. And that's just <laughs> really endearing. Yeah. And the fact that she gave him those shoes as we learn towards the end. Yeah. I love how charming a narrator he is. We already talked about the narration just a little bit, but he's just so charming and he's so attentive to detail right down to exact dialogue. In fact, there's several times during the film where he'll say a character says a certain thing and then immediately after that character will say that certain thing. <laughs> so it's it's a funny, uh, endearing sort of narration technique that is employed several times throughout the film. And it always gets a sort of a little bit of a grin or a smile from me. I think one of my favorite Forrest moments is, um, oh, it's after three or four times of meeting the president. I believe it was after the ping pong match. And he says, so again, they invited me to go to the White House and meet the president. So I did again. <laughs> like he's just, <sighs> he had another meeting with the president. Like it's just no big deal. And another one of mine is um, after he gets all the money for the, um, oh, it's uh, Lieutenant Dan invests him in Apple. And he gets a letter saying that they don't have to worry about money anymore. Is that from, from Apple or is that from something else? No, it's from Apple. He says it's some sort of fruit-based company. Fruit-based company. <laughs> I couldn't remember if, if it was the shrimp boat or, or Apple. It was, it was Apple. And he goes, and they told me that I didn't have to worry about money anymore. You know, that's nice. One less thing. <laughs> <laughs> he's so simple. He's not impressed or affected by things like going to college or visiting the White House or even going to Vietnam for war. It's just another step in his life. Another thing. Yeah, just another thing. Now he's a millionaire and oh, that's nice. Now I don't have to worry about money. Okay. <laughs> 
It's like anyone else would be over the moon, but he's like, all right, well, it's one less thing I have to worry about. That's good. We find instead of being attached to these sort of extravagant events or money or anything like that in his life, he's more attracted to the people in his life. He's constantly quoting his mom. Uh, He says several times, mama always said, whether it's life is like a box of chocolates or whether it's... uh, There's an awful lot you can tell about a person by their shoes or any other number of little tidbits that he reveals he learned from his mom and that he sort of lives his life by. And his dedication to his mom extends even further. He jumps off the side of the shrimp boat and swims to shore as soon as he finds out she's sick. She's such an important figure in his life because she made him realize that he's no different than anybody else and that he can he can be his own kind of person. And he's also dedicated to people like Bubba. He calls him my best good friend. Mm -hmm. And he carries on his legacy and his wishes and ultimately shares his part of the money with Bubba's family so that they can move on and live better lives. And then his loyalty to Lieutenant Dan, when Lieutenant Dan drags him off his hospital bed and is angry, visibly angry and upset that Forrest sort of stole his destiny from him in his eyes. He says, "I, I was Lieutenant Dan Taylor. And Forrest just simply replies, you're still Lieutenant Dan. And the whole rest of the movie, it, it's always Lieutenant Dan this, Lieutenant Dan that. He never calls him anything else because he has that level of respect for him. He's still Sir. I mean, Lieutenant Dan's not going to call him Sir, but <laughs> he is Sir to uh, to Forrest. He's always his lieutenant. It's always that respect and that loyalty. And then his level of attachment to Jenny just knows no bounds. Uh, no matter how many times she spurns him, He's there for her and he's always thinking of her. It's sad in a way because you see how she treats him for much of the film. And we'll talk about that in just a moment, I'm sure. But he never holds, he never thinks of her any differently than as the most beautiful angel he's ever seen or the sweetest voice he's ever heard or anything like that. It's, he, he's always telling a story, telling a story. But then I would think of Jenny and like yada, 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 yada. And then I think of Jenny and the, his entire life story is bookended by him thinking of this girl who he eventually marries. And as as flawed as Jenny is, um, and I know lots of people have mixed feelings on Jenny, but you got to be happy for Forrest. I mean, he, he got her finally. <laughs> he did. He did. And I mean, he's just a pure character. He He doesn't know hate. He doesn't know prejudice. He doesn't have assumptions about anybody. He only knows kindness and... And he knows love. And that's what I love most about Forrest is that that's something that we can learn from him is that there doesn't need to be hate or prejudice or uh, preconceived notions about other people we come across. We just need to approach everybody with the same love and kindness and innocence that Forrest does. And (laughs) frankly, the world would be a much better place. We even see him um, in that first big riot when uh, his school was allowing African-Americans to attend for the first time and he picks up the woman's notebook and gives it back to her as she's walking into the building like he does not know prejudice at all he wouldn't think twice about sharing a school it's just really innocent and uh open-minded like that well let's go ahead and start talking about jenny just a little bit so what do you have to say about jenny (sighs) i struggle with jenny um i never really pin down what i think of her it kind of changes with every viewing She's so, she had such a hard childhood. I mean, she was abused. She is just so challenging. She's very smart, but she makes bad choices that end up hurting her and hurting Forrest. Sometimes it seems like she knows she's hurting Forrest and she keeps doing it. But I do think she loves him. I don't know. I I struggle with her. 
I think that she's sort of a sobering example of how important a child's formative years are and how our experiences when we're that young and that age can really stick with us and affect us for the rest of our lives. I, I think there's really sort of two possibilities in the way she treats Forrest and why she treats him that way. I think one of them is that maybe she's frightened of sticking with Forrest to the point that he becomes a, just another abusive male in her life. Um, she struggles with coming across men who truly treat her with kindness, uh, whether it's her father or whether it's men who stare at her naked on stage or whether it's these boyfriends who introduce her to drugs or hit her or anything like that. I think she's just worried that if she sticks around for Forrest for too long, that he might become the same thing, at least when she's younger. But then I think the other possibility is that she doesn't want to corrupt him with her own issues. I, I think that she realizes that she's messed up, that she's had a rough life, and that she's struggling with departing from that. And she doesn't want to take a character so innocent as Forrest and bring those same problems into his life. I like that point of view, and I agree with that, I think, as well. She knows that she's troubled. And I think eventually when she finally does sort her life out is when she feels that she can then return to Forrest. I think one of my favorite moments between the two of them is when we kind of see Jenny in her first big slump, as an adult anyway. She was kicked out of school, and uh, Forrest goes to see her sing at the burlesque club, and she's completely naked um, on stage holding a guitar, and the audience, the, the audience of the movie is led to be kind of disappointed and, and feel sorry for Jenny, but when you look at Forrest, he is so proud of her because she's doing what she loves. She's a folk singer. And um, he, I, I believe he makes a, a statement on that point, which is, oh, she finally did it. She's she's singing folk music. And it's so sweet to see that he he doesn't see the, the negative side that we all do, which is she's being, you know, kind of harassed by these men. But Forrest sees it as she's doing what she loves. Right. He's never anything but proud of Jenny, whether it's him thinking that she's reached her dream of becoming a folk singer or even at the end when they're getting married and Lieutenant Dan shows up and he says, this is my Jenny. And it, he looks at her and he's got this grin and he's so proud that this is finally happening and that they're finally going to spend the rest of their lives together. However short lived it may be, he can finally call her his. It's just it's so sweet the way he looks at her. And I think despite all of her issues, she finally accepts and she reciprocates Forrest's love. And there's that scene where Forrest says, I, I may not be a smart man, but I know what love is. And she goes and she they, they sleep with each other. And then she leaves the next morning because I almost think she gets scared again, maybe for some of the same reasons earlier. But then when she has a child, his child, she really sort of understands the love that he has for her in a certain way. It helps her to mature. It teaches her to love someone the way Forrest loves her. And it brings her to bringing him back into her life. There are a couple of touching scenes at the very end. I, I say a couple. The whole last half hour of the movie is really touching. <laughs> but when Jenny is lying sick in her bed at Forrest's house after the marriage, and he reveals that she was basically his guardian angel, she says, I wish I could have been there with you. And he says, you were. And he says, the only reason I survived Vietnam is because I did what you asked me to. And when I was running across the country for three years, you were the one that was always on my mind. And when I was shrimping, I named the boat after you. And I saw beautiful sights amongst 
all these memories and you were on my mind at the forefront of my mind the whole time. Uh, so I love that moment. And then something that I had never noticed before, but during Forrest or at the end of Forrest's long monologue at uh, Jenny's grave under the tree, as he starts walking away, a flock of birds fly into the tree above her grave. And it's reminiscent of that scene at the beginning when she's with Forrest and they're praying in the cornfield that God make her into a bird so that she can fly far away, far, far away from here. I don't think that the movie is trying to say that she had to die in order for her to to reach that sort of level of peace and that freedom. I think it's saying that because she brought Forrest back into her life and because she made peace with death, then in death she was free. It was because it happened beforehand, not after. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it's funny because it was just at this last viewing that I caught that same thing as well. And I agree as well that it's it's not her death that made it her peace, but it happened to coincide. And I believe Forrest, even heartbroken as he is, he is at peace because he has little Forrest as well, which is a part of Jenny that will be with him much longer. And it's their son, you know, uh, he's the uh, result of their love, which I think is something really, really special to him, as it should be. It's It's his son. <laughs> Right. He's an extension. Little Forest is an extension of Jenny. Now, how about Lieutenant Dan? What do you have to say about him? I love their relationship. I think Forrest and Lieutenant Dan have such a special bond, especially, you know, towards the end of the film. But Lieutenant Dan, is he starts out, well, after the war, he is so harsh and mean and he's bitter and he's angry at God. Well, he doesn't believe in God. And he's... He's so resentful of Forrest for saving his life. He was supposed to die on the battlefield. That was his destiny. That's what his father and grandfather and great-grandfather and on had done. And he was prepared to die there. And so after the war, he just... I don't think he really wanted anything to do with Forrest. Um, he left the uh, the hospital without saying goodbye. And then the relationship starts to change. But it takes a long time. I mean, they meet up over New Year's. And um, I think one of my favorite scenes between the two of them is when they bring back the women to the hotel room and the women call Forrest stupid. And Dan gets furious on behalf of Forrest and says, don't you dare call him that. You never call him stupid. Which is just so, it's it's that loyalty again, um, which I think is one of the big major themes here is just loyalty to your friends, loyalty to the people who love you. And um, Forrest absolutely loves Lieutenant Dan. I mean, every single time that <laughs> that Lieutenant Dan shows up, this big smile wipes across Forrest's face and he waves or in some cases jumps off a boat. Lieutenant Dan! I mean, he's so excited to see him. That's love. He He's one of his best friends. And um, of course, when Lieutenant Dan shows up at Forrest's wedding, he's a new man and he's happy and he's getting married and he's got legs and he's um, he's probably found God. At least that's what Forrest believes he has. He's He's at peace again. I think that's my favorite part of Lieutenant Dan's character is his sort of struggle and anger against and subsequent peace with God. Uh, when when Forrest meets up with him at New Year's, he goes on this sort of rant about how at the, the VA, he is constantly sort of barraged with questions about finding God and accepting God into his heart. And that if he does, then he will walk alongside God in heaven. And that just makes him even angrier because here's this man who has taken who, who's had his life taken away from him basically because he no longer has his legs he can no longer walk and so that that idea of maybe being able to walk in the future angers him more than it sort of comforts him 
And he sort of has this mindset of what kind of God would allow this to happen to me when I had a different sort of destiny lined up for my life. And that's part of his anger with Forrest as well. But when it's funny, when he goes along with Forrest on the shrimping boat and he sort of challenges God and he's he's saying, you know, I bet you won't sink this boat and you'll never take us and all this kind of stuff. And he challenges Forrest uh, to to pray for more shrimp. If, if your God is so great, pray for more shrimp. And God, God does it. <laughs> At least that's the way Forrest tells the story is that God comes and he sees them through to the other side and leaves them the only ones in charge of the shrimping industry. And uh, as a result, Dan sort of accepts that, you know, maybe I did have a different destiny for my life and maybe this was it. And Forrest has helped me to realize this new path for my life. And it really just turns him all the way around. He apologizes. He accepts God, in, at least in Forrest's eyes. And he has that nice moment where he just sort of jumps over the side of the boat and peacefully sort of swims and wades through the water. It, it, it's really a, a pretty visual to go along with the inner peace that he's just accomplished. And he's um, physically stronger at that point, too. I mean, he's able to swim, which... I feel like until that point, he was weak physically, he was weak mentally, emotionally, and now he's swimming. He's okay. He's holding it together. And then, of course, at the end, he gets legs again. Um, and I think Forrest's reaction to that is, is pretty incredible. Um, Dan is sort of a success story, and it's kind of fun to see a little biblical parable in Forrest Gump. <laughs> When he shows up at the wedding at the end, I think he sort of has the same reaction a lot of the bus stop people have, where he almost didn't expect Jenny to be real, or, de you know, the same way the bus stop people think that certain aspects of Forrest's story are a little bit too far-fetched. And when Forrest introduces him, this is my Jenny, unlike the bus stop people, Dan has a sort of, I get it kind of reaction, like, I, I understand. He understands that there is a woman out there who has this love reciprocated for Forrest because Forrest has never shown Dan anything but love and respect and kindness despite not receiving the same in return. So I think there's this this momentary look on his face where he's like, wow, she she's real. And it just sort of solidifies the relationship a little bit further. I agree that Forrest has one of Forrest's biggest strengths is being able to love people unconditionally. And he loves some really hard people to love, but he does it. Definitely. And to sort of close off our Lieutenant Dan talk, at least for me, uh, I love the the small little space references because <laughs> the next year they released Apollo 13 starring Tom Hanks and Gary Sinise. <laughs> and uh, so there, there's one quote where Dan is, it's when he makes a promise that he'll be Forrest's first mate. So he says something to the effect of the day you're a shrimp boat captain is the day I go to space. And then at the end, when he has his magic legs, as Forrest calls him, he says titanium alloy, the same stuff they use on the space shuttle. So I, I, I don't know if those were intentional or not. <laughs> I actually Googled this because I was curious. And it seems to be split 50-50. Some people think it's just coincidence. You know, it's around the same time as the space shuttle. So maybe that was just a fun fact he was throwing in. I like to think maybe he became an astronaut. He wanted to. He's a lieutenant. That's not out of the question. I'm, I'm hoping he did. I don't know. <laughs> it's a little open-ended, but... Yeah, maybe so. <laughs> <laughs> well, any other... Well, I guess we should at least mention Bubba. What do you have yeah, to say about Bubba? I mean, I don't have a whole lot to say, but he he's worth mentioning. I, I just love Bubba and Forrest. I think they are so similar. I think Bubba was the first person Forrest met that was really like him. They're both simple. They're both 
loyal. And I think Baba is just so sweet to Forrest. And I think one of my favorite moments with them is when they're in the war and it's been raining forever and it's muddy and they are um, getting ready to go to sleep. And Baba suggests that he and Forrest sleep back to back, propped up against one another so that they don't have to sleep with their faces in the mud. And that's such a just teamwork, you know, war buddies, like good moment. Um, and it just shows that they're they're depending on each other. They're getting each other through this. And then, of course, after Bubba dies um, and Forrest does, you know, make a fortune from the from the shrimp boat company, he keeps his promise. I remember he tells Lieutenant Dan, a promise is a promise, Lieutenant Dan. So he gives Bubba's family his Bubba's um, half of the fortune because a promise is a promise. I think you said everything, really. They, they are very similar. Um, Bubba really teaches Forrest about brotherhood. Uh, where he grew up an only child, you know, his mama teaches him about loving others and that he's not different, but Bubba teaches him about uh, brotherhood and Dan teaches him about sort of authority and respect. And then Jenny is there to teach him about love even further. So I, I think each of the characters here definitely brings something different to the table that Forrest sort of learns from uh, because he is such an easily influenced person. I would agree with that. So sometimes we talk about how we relate to the characters. Are there any here that you relate to in particular? So I wouldn't say that I relate to one character in this film, but I think that they all sort of represent parts in all of us. So for some of the negative traits, I think we can all sometimes be a little naive like Forrest, sometimes um, irresponsible and reckless like Jenny, bitter like Dan, but we can also be trusting and loyal and kind like Forrest or adventurous like Jenny or forgiving like Dan. I, I, I don't think that any of these characters necessarily represent any of us. I think they all represent parts of us. That's kind of always how I've seen this movie is just that because they're all so different, especially the, the three main characters, Jenny, Forrest, and Lieutenant Dan. I like that. And I agree. You know, I, I've always said that for me, when I rewatch films, I like to try and put myself in the shoes of different characters. So this rewatch, I'll watch through the perspective of Forrest. And this rewatch, I'll watch through the perspective of Jenny and so on. So that I can sort of get in their head and better understand their motivations and uh, why they do the things they do. And so I think it, it's definitely true that we, we see bits of ourselves in every single one of the characters. And I think there's a lot of value to trying to relate to all of them so that you understand them better. So yeah, I like that. Well, let's go ahead and start talking about the music a little bit. And we'll start off with Alan Silvestri's score. For me, I think this is perhaps Silvestri's most beautiful music, at least as far as the themes go. You've got the main title or the sort of the feather theme, uh, which is tender and almost has a little bit of a juvenile quality to it, which isn't a bad thing, I don't think. It's very representative of Forrest in a good way. It's very simple piano not overly fast, not overly complex. It, it's a really beautiful theme. And uh, just about any other theme in the movie, I think is a bit of a tearjerker, whether it's that theme or whether it's uh, the music that's introduced in the uh, You're No Different cue on the score. Mm-hmm. It's the... Yeah, that one, uh, which I think is sort of an, another forest theme or maybe a young forest and then there's the running theme, which we get a couple of variations on. So we hear it the first time when Jenny first says, run, Forrest, run. And we get a, a huge, brassy, big version of it when Forrest is playing football. Yeah. And then there's the sort of joint theme that I think I heard being used at different times for both 
uh, Jenny and for Lieutenant Dan, which I think is interesting because th- there are definite parallels between those two characters in how they sort of deteriorate for a little bit of the film and then they sort of rise from the ashes, for lack of a better descriptor. Uh, they, they come out on the other side better people, I think. And so it's interesting that I think the same music was used a couple instances for both characters. I believe you're right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I really love Alan Silvestri. And I, I do think that this is it's it's very pretty music. As far as music that is not um, score music, this is a, a neat film because we do travel through, I think, the 50s through the 80s mostly. And so we get to see the music or we get to hear rather the music of the time as well. So I made a short little list of some of the big names. We've got Elvis singing Hound Dog, of course, in his mother's inn. We have Aretha Franklin. We have the Beach Boys, The Doors, Simon and Garfunkel, Leonard Skinner, Willie Nelson. Um, just a bunch of really big, you know, classic hits. We've got Mrs. Robinson, On the Road Again, Hound Dog, Respect. Like these are such iconic pieces that we all fit into one movie and they all work because it is a sort of a tour through his life. There are songs in this soundtrack that I just can't help but always associate with this movie. So even if they come on the radio completely out of context from this film, I think of it, especially uh, songs like Get Together by the Young Bloods, Everybody's Talking by Harry Nilsson, Running on Empty, especially. I think that's a big one for me. Running on Empty will forever be the Forrest Gump running song by Jackson Brown, (laughs) even Against the Wind to a certain extent by Bob Seger. Those are the main ones for me that if I hear those songs out of context, I always think of Forrest Gump. And I, I like how the the soundtrack songs are almost used as a timeline throughout the film. It's not so exact that if we're in a certain year in Forrest's life, we're hearing a song from that year. It's not quite that linear. But for the most part, we, we do hear music on a spectrum from that time period, uh, which I think is a really cool way to show sort of the passage of time and give the film a little bit more context. Well, cool. I mean, I, I don't think there's a whole lot else to be said about the music aside from that. Uh, it, it's good stuff. The The soundtrack is extremely well known to a lot of people, I think, specifically. And then, uh, like I said, Silvestri's score is just very pretty. If you haven't downloaded the score album, it's only like 36, 39 minutes long. It's not extremely long, but it it's all very nice listening music. You're right. There's not a whole lot of original score music because so much of it is hits from the decades. But what there is of the score is lovely. Well, let's go ahead and move on to sort of our takeaways, our relevant section. So what's one of your takeaways from this movie? I think my really big one we already kind of touched on, which is uh, loyalty. Forrest shows incredible loyalty to Jenny, to Bubba, to Lieutenant Dan, to his mother. He showed incredible loyalty on on the battlefield, which won him a Medal of Honor he had to go find Bubba. And in doing so, he happened to cross, you know, nearly his entire platoon and um, brought them all back to safety or to die out of the battlefield, to die on the shore. He's just such a loyal character that um, that can't not be mentioned. It's worth pointing out that Forrest is looking for Bubba, but he, in looking for Bubba, he rescues everybody else. He doesn't leave anybody by the wayside. He He has a loyalty to Bubba and that's his his main motivation for running back and forth. But in the end, he earns the Medal of Honor because he rescues everybody else. He doesn't leave anybody behind. He doesn't pass them up. Yeah, it's a big glimpse into his character and his the way he looks at life. Everybody is worth saving in that respect. He doesn't run past them to go find Bubba. You know, he's, he's going out to, to find Bubba and then 
sees the others and brings him back as well and then goes back out. It's very heroic and definitely deserving of, of his Medal of Honor. One of the, the most well-known quotes, if not the most well-known quote from this movie, is the life is like a box of chocolates. You don't know what you're going to get. And I, I think what that is really telling us is that we have to sort of take life as it's given to us. But that's not to say that we don't have at least some measure of, say, in the way things go, in the outcome of our lives. And that sort of goes towards the theme of the feather and what the feather itself represents since it bookends the film. I was curious, do you have any sort of thoughts or interpretation of what the significance of the feather means, whether it is sort of like what Forrest Mother says, where we're all just floating around random or whether we have a destiny or do you have any sort of thought on that? I kind of tied the feather to Forrest himself. He, as far as I know, never really had a big plan in life until, I mean, he, he, he kind of gets thrown from situation to situation and makes the best of it. And um, he was not going to go to college and then he did. And then not going to go to Vietnam, and he did. Wasn't going to play ping pong, and then he did. And so just kind of wherever the wind took him, which, just like a feather, he took everything in stride and took things as they came. I like that. And I, I think I pretty much agree. I think that the feather itself is basically up for interpretation. I don't think there really is one definite answer one way or the other. I was reading online where Tom Hanks had his own interpretation. I think this is what I lean towards, where he says... Basically, that our future is determined by how we deal with the random things, big or small as a feather, that life puts in our path. So Forrest, his life is determined by people coming into his life and giving him options. So he's being chased by bullies, so he runs. He runs down the football field, and the talent scout finds him, and so he goes to college. And then after college, and he graduates with his degree, the army recruiter comes up and he says, have you ever thought about your future? And so now he's in the army and then he runs across Bubba and Bubba introduces him to the shrimping business. And so now he's a shrimper. And then it's just step after step, random thing happening in his life. And then he, he takes that and he makes it his own. So I think that that's really what the feather represents to me is just that yes, life is random, but what we do with the random things is sort of what determines our outcome. Which I think is so relevant, not to make it about ourselves, but we're both we're both in our 20s and it's such a unsure time and it's that's something that we can all definitely learn from is we, we all had plans to do stuff and a lot of times those plans change and we need to learn how to be flexible just like Forrest. I mean, he took opportunities as they came to him and his life turned out wonderfully and sometimes our, our, our plans aren't going to go the way we think they are, but something better might come along. Right. Basically, what happens with Lieutenant Dan? He thought his destiny was to die in the field. And instead, he presumably dies happy with a wife and having made a successful business. And that that's, I would say, a lot better than dying on the battlefield. So, yeah, there are definitely elements of anti-war sort of sentiments in this movie. And there, there's one notable scene where Forrest is sort of roped into this anti-Vietnam War rally. And he goes and he speaks on stage. And unfortunately, we don't get to actually hear what he says because the microphones are unplugged. But because we have the Internet, you can find at least what I think he says, what the Internet says he says, which is sometimes when people go to Vietnam, they go home to their mamas without any legs. Sometimes they don't go home at all. That's a bad thing. That's all I have to say about that. And uh, then, of course, the the main announcer guy says, I, I can't remember that character's name, but he says, right on, man, uh, you, that says it all. And I think that does say a lot is it, it, it's Forrest just taking this big concept of 
uh, loss and sacrifice and all those kinds of things and simplifying them into a way that he understands at least. And it ends up being surprisingly profound. And I'm not saying I'm against war. I'm not saying anything like that. I think it's specifically targeting the Vietnam War here, but could be applied to any war. And I think that it, it's really just asking us to consider consider the cost. I mean, even Bubba, when he's dying, he says, why did this happen? And I want to go home. And we have to consider those kind of situations when we do go into something like a war, especially Vietnam, which ended up being sort of this big blight in our nation's history. Any other takeaways? You know, I think that's all I have to say about that. (laughs) I wish I could leave it there, but I do have one more. (laughs) (laughs) I think ultimately the movie is about making peace with your life circumstances, whether it's peace with death, peace with love or peace with your past. You know, Jenny sort of grows out of her rebellious phase and comes back to Forrest because he's a man that has always treated her well. And she knows that she's always loved him, I think. uh, But it just sort of took her a while to realize it. And then you have Dan, who finally apologizes to Forrest and makes peace with God after they're, they're successful in their business together. It's about weathering the storm and ultimately just being unapologetically yourself. Forrest is never anything but authentically Forrest, which is pure. He's kind. He's loving. He's free of hate and prejudice. And again, I think it's something that we should all strive for. Any final thoughts? I think that's it for me. I think you said it. Great. Uh, Well, I think that is the end of the official 53rd episode of Cinescope. Thanks for joining me tonight, Katie. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Contact for the show, facebook.com slash podcast and at CinescopePod on Twitter. Please go over to iTunes, help us out by rating and reviewing and maybe even subscribing. It's a great way to help us gain more traction and be more visible to a wider audience. So please do that. It'd help us out. Also, you can email feedback and ideas to thecinescopepodcast at gmail.com. And if you're interested in co-hosting, if you have a movie that you love that you'd like to talk about, let me know so I can get you on the show in the future. Now, Katie, where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitter at ktlady623 or on Facebook at facebook.com slash katie.white. And Katie, you know, at the beginning of the show, we mentioned our new podcast. It's been coming soon for a few weeks now. And at this point, we can finally say that our first three episodes are available for download now. So we've already covered the entirety of season one of The Office, and that will hopefully give you a good taste of what's to come in this new weekly podcast. So go listen, go rate and review on iTunes if you feel so inclined, and then definitely please go to social media to tell others and to talk with us about what you think about the podcast so far and share your thoughts so that we can start including audience thoughts on that show. So that info, the places where you can find an American workplace will be in the show notes. That is also um, a podcast that is completely beginner friendly. Um, If you are new to the office, you are absolutely not going to be spoiled on the ending at all. And it's also great for, you know, longtime fans of the office like we are. Um, It's it's a spoiler free rewatch. So please join us. Right. And that's that's a great thing to mention, because we're going through episode by episode, two episodes per week. Uh, We're not talking about things in advance. We're only talking about things that have already happened. And in that way, it is great for both beginners and for old people because we're also watching via DVD. So we're watching the deleted scenes for each episode. We're watching the commentary tracks for each episode. And so we're trying to instill in a little bit of extra bonus content 
that if you just watch the show on Netflix, like we had done previously, then you might get new stuff through listening to us if you don't want to go out and watch the DVDs for yourself. So definitely go check out An American Workplace, available now. Now, the best place to find me is at Chadadada on Twitter. That is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A and on Facebook.com slash Chad.Hopkins. And all the show notes and all of our contact information can be found at the website, thecinescopepodcast.com. And that is all for this week. Thanks, Katie. It's been awesome talking with you on Cinescope, and I'm looking forward to talking with you every week on American Workplace from this point on. Can't wait. Thanks for having me, Chad. Thank you, everyone, for listening to episode 53. I'm Chad Hopkins. This was Cinescope, and we'll be back next week with episode 54. Have fun and celebrate movies. Mm-hmm.